Hello and welcome to the King's Weekly Podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar Johnson, editor-in-chief of No Ceilings MBA and staff writer for No Ceilings MBA. And I'm here, of course, with my co-host, founder and curator of the Basketball Intelligence newsletter available at basketballintelligence.net, Ray LeBeau. Hello there, Ray. Hello, Nick. We are continuing our Pacific Division preview series today, and we were fortunate enough to have Dan Wojcicki of the LA Times here to talk with us about the Los Angeles Lakers. And here's our conversation with Dan. Welcome, everyone, to Kings Weekly, our series on the Sacramento Kings. Uh, I I would say weekly series. Uh, I'm joined, of course, today with uh, our regular co-host, Nick Agar-Johnson from No Ceilings, and our special guest to talk about the Lakers and um, previewing their season is uh, Jan Wojcicki from the uh, Los Angeles Times. So uh, thanks for joining us today, Dan. And um, let's start off by asking you uh, what your expectations are for the Lakers this season and to the extent possible in such a very small sample size, what you've seen so far and how that correlates or informs what, what your expectation is. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, let me start with the second half of that. I think they've had a very good preseason so far. Um, you know, they've they've talked a lot about continuity and they've talked a lot about building on what they did last year in the playoffs and what they did last year after the trade deadline. And like so far that that has been sort of what it's looked like for them. Um, they've looked in pretty good rhythm. You know, they look like a team that makes a lot of sense, which is, you know, wasn't really the case during the Westbrook era of Laker basketball, where it just like the pieces didn't fit. So um, you were constantly like fighting a, a an equation that had no answer. This seems like I was joking with uh, with Darvin Ham about this the other day, where I was like, Darvin, like I'm kind of bored with your team already. Like there isn't really any drama. Like it's pretty like like competency isn't like the sexiest thing in the world to write about. And like, they're coming off of, you know, a stretch where they've shown a lot of competency. And I I think, you know, as to what my expectations are, I mean, that's where it gets a little more interesting just because I think, you know, and it's interesting you guys are doing this with the division. I mean, like, that's a good place to start is like, I mean, you could put any of these teams in a hat and pick them out for the order. And I would believe it. You know, I mean, like there's like the Lakers could win 45 games and finish last in the division. I wouldn't be shocked by that. They could win 55 games and be first in the division. I don't think I'd be totally shocked by that either. I, I think, you know, they are better equipped to handle a LeBron James injury, better equipped to handle an Anthony Davis injury should it arise. Um, or I guess probably safer to say when it arises. But <laughs> it, it, it's it's just, um, you know, I mean, I think like the West is stacked. I think you've got to be pretty good to have like a realistic title kind of hope on day one. And I think the Lakers have put themselves in the position to be one of the teams that can credibly look themselves in the mirror and say, if it all goes right, we can compete for a title this year. And I I, I think that's really all you can do in the offseason. So you mentioned sort of the concept that if everything goes right, this could be one of the top contending teams. And this is a question that I think is impossible to ask, but I feel almost obligated to ask anyway. With LeBron James, you know, at this point, he is the longest tenured player in the league. He's going to turn 39 years old before the end of the season. He passed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for the all-time scoring record. And yet the expectation is that he'll be, you know, one of the 10 best players in the league and continue to be the leader for this Lakers squad. So, you know, you sort of mentioned it already, but I'm curious, do you think that 
LeBron is sort of heading into the season in a better place than he was last year, just sort of based on the roster around him? Or how do things look with sort of where LeBron stands with the roster as it's currently constructed? Yeah, I mean, I think early last year, there was certainly some frustration with the inability to get a Westbrook trade done. I mean, I think, you know, this is we're talking about one of the smartest players of all time. So I think you'd have to be pretty naive to think that LeBron James could look at the roster with Russell Westbrook on it and say, oh, we can figure this out, right? Like they had they had gone a half season, you know, basically when they were healthy together and it hadn't really worked. And, you know, I think there was some light optimism that maybe in year two would be better, but it was pretty clear early on it wouldn't be, um, you know, and I think that I remember a conversation we had early in the season where it was basically like, you know, I think I might have caught him yawning in the locker room after one of like the first 10 or 12 games and we talked about it. I was like, this feels like game 90. This doesn't feel like game 10. Like this feels like game 90 from last year. And he's like, who are you telling? You know, and it's sort of like, and and I, and I think like, yeah, like I think the trade deadline, like he was refreshed and, and, and certainly, you know, the, the playoff push like reignited some fires in him. But I, I think, you know, there's a, there's a couple things that happened last season that people tend to forget just because of the way everything happened. And I think one of the things is, you know, how good LeBron James was playing for a big stretch of that season, you know, um, you know, a stretch in December and January as he kind of chased down the scoring record where he was phenomenal offensively, right? Like was just unstoppable. And then I think um, the other thing that people don't remember is that when the Lakers really went on their run, um, you know, made their playoff push, LeBron James missed a ton of those games with a foot injury um, that, you know, he wasn't on the court and he certainly, I mean, we remember him not being healthy and stuff like that, but there was a big stretch, um, you know, when this team was playing really must win basketball and they were doing it without LeBron. So I, you know, I, I think the way the team is constructed is that, you know, Nick in a perfect world, um, LeBron James will be asked to do less and will be more comfortable doing so. I, I think the second part of that is, you know, a wait and see. I think it is hard for guys as they get older to adjust their usage, adjust the way they play, um, and, and downscale a little bit. And I still don't think you're at the point now where you're saying, hey, okay, LeBron, we need you just to be a role player. But, you know, there are some things we could look to and say, like, you know, maybe he's getting some Reeves. Um, he trusted him, you know, in the playoffs against Memphis. Uh, you know, I mean, when you look at the players that won them playoff games last year, LeBron was one of them. You know, but so was D'Angelo Russell um, early against Golden State. Austin Reeves, Anthony Davis, Rui Hachimura, I mean, Lonnie Walker. I mean, you know, LeBron was comfortable when other guys got it, had it going, you know, comfortable enough kind of moving to the side a little bit and pick, you know, the, the way they say is picking his spots. Um, you know, we'll see how that goes over the course of an entire season. But, like, the way this team is built, um, there should be less pressure on him to have to do, you know, everything or, or some version of everything. Dan, you know, I think that while it's true that he is obviously up there in years and um, his number of years that he's played is, is even illusory in the sense that he's always deep into the playoffs. I would say it's, it's games and minutes, it's you know, games. or like the crazy numbers, yeah. Yeah, so it's one and a half times what you would say for almost any other player, basically. Yeah. But on the other hand, he, it, it seems, and you would know better than anyone, it seems that he spends more time, energy, and resources maximizing the shape he's in. Yeah. And therefore, he's not to be compared to some other player who would have that same level of wear and tear and add to that his IQ. 
right? Um, yeah. So- yeah, Ray. I mean, I think there's, you know, he takes a lot of pride in this stuff. I mean, I think like the only one he could be compared to on that front is like, say like Tom Brady, mm-hmm. you know, that, and that's a comparison that LeBron has made. Um, they were both at a WNBA game together the other day, not together, but they were both there and, and, and spoke. And we've heard him talk about Brady a bunch of different times. And you know what I mean? As somebody who, who had inspired him and stuff like that. I mean, I think like, you know, I mean, he puts the work in um, to me, that will be sort of, I don't think it'll be like a question of him not loving the game anymore at the end. I think honestly, it'll be more like he was kind of sick of the work mm. than anything else. But he is a guy though, who has tremendous energy. Um, you know, like it's not uncommon for the LeBron James, you know, it's three forty-five in the morning, Instagram post that says like, let's time to get to work and stuff like that. I mean, he is a very energetic person. You talk to the people who work with him on his body. Um, and that's the thing that they always say is like, they cannot believe what he has available to put into this stuff, you know, um, in terms of just like, you know, being able to, Darvin Ham always says like, we need to go home and like fill our cups. Right. Like that's like his phrasing for like getting mm-hmm. refreshed to like LeBron's like a super big gulp, <laughs> you know, like, like it's crazy. Like he is able to, he is able to just like, you know, pour all of this stuff into it. And then, you know, somehow, you know, at, on short rest, figure out a way to do it again. It, it's, it, it is in addition to obviously the size, the IQ, the physical gifts, um, the skill, all of these things that make him, in my opinion, the second greatest player of all time. Um, you know, like it is sort of the maniacal work ethic and energy, um, a trait that he shared with Michael Jordan or shares with Michael Jordan that I think helps make him stand apart. You know, I'd like to ask you about something that uh, surprised a, a lot of people and what you make of it and what you think it's really all about and what impact, if any, it's going to have. And that's uh, Coach Ham's um, statement uh, about wanting to have AD shoot six threes a game. Yeah. What, what, what do you make of that? I mean, I think it's more just basically like a let it fly, have a green light. I, I think he knows Anthony Davis isn't going to shoot six threes a game. Right. Um, I think that's a really safe bet. But I think, um, you know, when the ball finds Anthony Davis and he's open, I think they want him to shoot, right? And that is, I think, the message there, right, is that, like, the light is green. Um, it is as green as it can get. You know, shoot. Um, it is sort of, I think, an interesting thing. I mean, I don't know if it's a, if it's been confidence or what it is, but, you know, Anthony Davis has not been a good jump shooter for right. two seasons. Um, it, it's just not been who he is. Um, he is a he's a streaky shooter. He's been a guy that I feel like it's funny. You can always kind of tell what kind of night he's going to have offensively by like where do those first few points come from, and if they come from the rim, and if they come from the free throw line, you know that sets the stage much more. Whereas if he kind of starts with the face up jumper and misses, it it tends to kind of knock him out of rhythm a little bit. I think he shot the ball well so far this preseason. You know he's been. I think even more importantly, he's been confident and quick with the release but like you know i remember there was a game a couple years ago where it was the final game before the preseason he shot six threes i think in the last preseason game and i remember thinking like oh my gosh like this dude is going to be totally unlocked and he's going to be like kevin durant out there and it's just not that's just not what it didn't happen you know like the games would come and he you know he'd fall out of rhythm and 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 i i wouldn't be surprised to see some element of that again this year right like i think i mean anthony davis isn't 22 you know, he, he's, he, you know, in the heart of his prime. And I think it's hard for those guys to adjust, but 
the message is clear. Like if those shots are there, we want you to take it. It'll help our spite. It'll help our spacing. I think they put more spacing around him. Um, the shot quality should be pretty high. And, um, you know, I think the talent is there for him to, to launch, but you know, if I had to bet on Anthony Davis taking, you know, <laughs> 400 threes this year, I think the under is a pretty, a pretty strong bet. So as a follow-up to that, if he is playing, um, not literally what Coach Ann was saying, but in that direction. What about uh, the, the complementarity and the rest of the front line? How is that going to work? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, that is one of those areas they're kind of sorting things out because they've, you know, they've made some changes there. I mean, I think, look, right, like in a perfect world, LeBron James is your four, Anthony Davis is your five, and you kind of roll from that. But, like, neither of those guys are, quote, unquote, prototypical. So you can move and move different parts and there'll be times when, you know, they'll have Rui Hachimura in that front cart with those two guys. And, you know, um, that's a pretty dynamic score. A guy who can create his own shot, a guy who can knock down an open shot. He showed that in the playoffs. Um, I think they want to see more from him defensively in terms of his versatility. Um, you know, Jared Vanderbilt has a lot of defensive versatility, but like, can he comfortably incredibly like knock down a corner three? Like if he can, um, he'll be a really big weapon. And if he can't, um he'll get played off the court in the playoffs like what happened last year um one of the guys who you know who's played great this preseason for them is is Jackson Hayes and I think is a guy who they look at and and see just like you know a six foot eleven pogo stick who you can tell to kind of do one or two things and it's like set screens and dive to the rim and just do it over and over again and he seems willing to do that he's got good hands um and then you know to me like the x factor is Christian Wood and it, it, he's a low risk player in the sense that you're not paying him much. Um, he's a high risk player in the fact that, you know, he's a guy who can score 20 points a game, but, you know, the Lakers got him on the minimum um, deep into free agency, which kind of tells you what the market was for him. So um, I'm not quite sure exactly how those guys get jumbled out. I, I ran, I think at, at like if there's a place that in two months we say, you know, player so and so is unhappy with his minutes, um, it could come from this group. It seems like it would be a, a, a potential area of red flag in terms of, you know, are they going to really be able to play all of these guys? Um, but, you know, that competition could also could also breed some good things. And then, you know, like we said it before, like there are going to be plenty of there are going to be plenty of nights over the course of a season, I think, where, you know, LeBron James or Anthony Davis might not be available and, and the Lakers have, you know, the, more firepower now than they've had in the past to kind of fill those gaps. So I want to move on to the guard rotation now. And Austin Reeves has certainly had a big summer in terms of, you know, he had quite a few high scoring output games in FIBA play, but he was also hunted pretty relentlessly on the defensive end in FIBA play. And especially with the playoffs last year, you know, D'Angelo Russell saw his minutes fluctuate. Let's just put it that way during the playoffs. So I'm curious sort of how you think the guard rotation shakes out and especially with the addition of Jalen Hochefino, who, you know, granted he's a rookie and pretty much all rookies struggle defensively, but he certainly has the chops to be a high caliber NBA defender. Do you think he might sort of get a bigger role in this rotation, given the defensive concerns with Reeves and Russell? How do you sort of see that backcourt rotation shaking out? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a good question. I mean, I think one of the things you know, and talking to Steve Kerr about kind of Austin and defense and the and FIBA is like, you know, they were basically playing like a switch everything. There, the type of help that was available isn't sort of 
the type of team defensive help that, that, you know, in theory should be there within a system and that, you know, that's an opportunity for a player like Austin Reeves to, to use his familiarity and use his smarts. I mean, I think the question for me with, with Austin and his defense is, you know, as his usage goes up on offense, will he be able to pour as much into defense, right? It's as simple as that. Like, you know, he was a guy who was never regarded as like a stopper at Oregon. That wasn't the scouting report on him. Um, you know, but I think he came into camp with the Lakers. Um, I mean, in fact, I know he came into camp with the Lakers. He looked at the roster and said, wow, if I play a little defense, like I'm going to play. Right. And he figured out a way to like be functional on defense and play. And I think, you know, last year um, in the postseason, you know, I mean, whether it was, you know, Clay Thompson really struggled in the Warriors series against Lakers. Like part of that was Austin Reeves. Like, you know, did a really good job chasing him. Um, did a really good job on Desmond Bain uh, the first uh, half of that series. And I think he got worn down, though, a little bit. I mean, I think, you know, running him through, you know, Dylan Brooks and Xavier Tillman screens over and over and over again, I think had uh, um, an effect on him. And, and I think he'll, you know, he's never going to be a guy who's like 6'5", like 225, like rocked up, like he's a skinny guy. But I think that's part of the question. It, it, it is, though, you know, you've got really three main guys that are going to play a lot, and that's Gabe Vincent, um, you know, D'Angelo Russell, and, and Austin Reeves. And, like, those guys aren't – they're all – they're all would be big – they're all, like, big-ish point guards, and they're all small twos. Yeah. Right? Like, like so there's going to be that. Um, you know, the other guy um, that could really be in that mix at the start of the season is Max Christie. Mm-hmm. Um, who had a great summer, um, you know, is put on weight, 6'5", good athlete, like kind of looks the, the part of a guy. And, you know, they've had people there who, who think that there's a world in which he can maybe even guard some, you know, some ones and some fours in kind of the modern NBA. With, and I'm not totally there yet. Um, I think he's got a ways to go, but the physical profile is there. And, you know, like you mentioned, Jalen Huchifino, I think um, – I anticipate him to be kind of back and forth a little bit between sort of the, the main the main club in, in the G League to, to keep him sharp and to keep minutes there. Um, but, you know, it isn't a – he's not like a five-year project type of player. Um, you know, I think he's a very mature player, um, comfortable obviously with the ball in his hands, defensively um, has the size and the strength to compete. Um, I think there are some questions about it, the athleticism and the quickness. And offensively, like the big question is, is you know, the shooting. Will will that kind of come together? But, um, you know, I mean, he's functionally their third point guard at this point. And what we know about an eighty-two game season is like those guys play. And yeah. and I think and and you know, so if if we had this conversation in May, and we looked at you know a Jalen Hutchinson season where he played, you know, thirty games in four hundred and fifty minutes, like I wouldn't be shocked um, by any real stretch. I. I, you know, as of today, is he really in the rotational plans? I no, I don't believe so. I think they're pretty they're pretty set on on, on those top three. With um, Max Christie is a guy who's kind of in the fight for like the tenth the the tenth man minutes. I mean, another player we didn't mention is Cam Reddish, who they also signed, who's out, who who you know is a really polarizing player. Um, <laughs> you know, I I do I did talk to a scout though. Um, before one of their preseason games, who, who really felt like despite and, – and Cam looked really bad in, in their first game. He really struggled, um, and then he got hurt. Um, but, like, who still think that he's the kind of guy that, like, you know, with more structure, more stakes and stuff like that can kind of use his unique all-around skill set and he can matter for that team. Um, 
it's just like you you know it's one of those things like he's got for for Jalen Hachino to win minutes he's going to have to jump five or six guys and and like I think that'll be a challenge but um, I I know they've been happy with his sort of uh, with his maturity and and I think you know they you draft a player like that in part because you think he'll be ready to play sooner than later. You know you were talking about expectations and rotations for various for most of the teams around the league and how it all changes. Yeah. But Unless you're the 2023 Kings, it changes for every team in the league. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, like, you know, it, it's one of those things, you know, when we saw Sacramento play um, the Lakers the other night, and, and it is like you look at the Kings and you see the, you know, the, the minor changes they made. And I think, yeah. you know, you know, they're a team that, like the Lakers, uh, is really going to benefit from continuity, another year of continuity together. Um, I mean, you watch the ease in which Sabonis kind of navigates what they're trying to do offensively, um, you know, and he's the type of passer who's like, you know, and we've seen this and this comp gets made all the time, right? You see with the way Nikola Jokic kind of runs runs their yeah. offense. Right. And, and, and there was a play or two, I think, where, you know, he almost passed De'Aaron Fox into a cut that he hadn't made yet. Right. You know you, yeah. you know what I mean? But like, he, but, but it was the right place to go. He trusted yeah, that really. De'Aaron would get there. And kind of you you know almost like an option route football, where but like but in reverse with the quarterback throwing it to the spot and telling the receiver go get it, and and I and I, I look I look at Sacramento as a team that with its speed with its playmaking with its passing, you know I think a lot of people have them pegged as maybe a team that could that could slide this year they won't catch anyone by surprise and all that stuff is true but you know in the course of regular season if you play fast and you play efficiently offensively and you play with confidence and togetherness like you're a pain every night and um i don't see any reason why sacramento wouldn't still be a pain every night and that's why i said i mean like you look at the west, you look at the west you look at the pacific division in particular and you know i mean i could make a prediction but i would you know the only thing i'm sure of is that i'd probably be wrong Right, you can make a prediction, but don't go don't go near Vegas to make it. Yeah, no, I mean it's just like I mean it's just it feels like total randomness. I mean, yeah. like obviously yeah. health health yeah. is going to be a big part of it because that's true for everybody. But even if everybody was totally healthy, I, I you could you could tell me that any one of those teams wins the division, and I can I can make the argument for it pretty easily. Well, the health issue kind of inspired my uh, last question about um, that rotations are going to change for everybody unless you're the 2023 Kings. Because of course they only lost fifty player games uh, to yeah. injury last year, and there were several teams in the league that lost close to three hundred. Uh, so <laughs> that, having taken statistics in college, I know that's not going to happen again. Yeah, no, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, right, like you're going to feel like injury luck is going to change a little bit and stuff like that. But like, and that's one of the things, right, that the Lakers really tried to do in their summer is they tried to to sign the kinds of players that that could mitigate the kind of the randomness that's assured throughout the NBA season. Right. And so, you know, should Anthony Davis miss 20 games, right? Like Christian Wood is a capable offensive replacement. Like that is true. He will not, he will not come close to replacing the impact defensively, but like he is capable to like give that team like a little extra scoring punch. Same goes for Rui Hachimura who can play the four. Right. And like, should LeBron James go out? Like you, you lose a tremendous playmaker but like you know, you you can still get a guy who can get get on the post on a mismatch and and work a, a mid range jump shot or, or or work his way to the basket and, and and draw a foul. They they've just kind of put themselves in a position with the quality of their depth, where they have guys that they trust in roles, but then they also believe that once like 
you know, an, an opportunity to expand. Gabe Vincent is a great example of this and did this in Miami, which was, you know, once the door got open for, for more minutes and more shots and, and a bigger offensive role, he, he completely took it. And, and I think, you know, that's one of the things the Lakers are looking at. Not so much that they expect Gabe Vincent on day one to be that um, for them. But, you know, when Austin Reeves, if Austin Reeves goes down, if D'Angelo Russell goes down for a little bit, you know, they're not going to sweat the, the the next man up. And and I think they feel that way at a bunch of different positions. And, you know, I guess that's, that's why people are pretty optimistic about the Lakers in their summer. Um, I still generally feel like, you know, they they are a team that is like built on a gamble. And the gamble is that, you know, LeBron and Anthony Davis will be healthy enough at the end of the season. And that's a bet. Uh, it's a bet for everyone. It's a little riskier probably for the Lakers than some. Um, but, you know, I think, like I said, all you can do is hope to put yourself in the conversation at the start of the season, you you know, and I think that's where they're at. And, you know, I guess we're, we'll, we'll find out in a few months. Well, I think that those can both be true on the one hand. Totally. You know, when you have uh, star players of that magnitude and you're obviously going to be dependent on them. On the other hand, it's a very smart thing to have constructed a roster that if somebody uh, of varying importance, whatever importance goes down uh, for a short or medium period of time, that it's not going to be catastrophic. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting, guys. And I'm curious, you know, if you felt this way, too, like, you know, so the Lakers last year, in terms of a trend thing, the Lakers last year had, you know, their three max players, and it was like, uh, it was just a, a salary cap hell for them. Like, they couldn't make trades to get out of the situation they were in. Um, they didn't have, like, kind of like the middle class of contract to put into a deal. They didn't pay anybody $12 million, I think. You know, it was basically either you made the max, you made, you, you know, you were there on a mid level, a one year mid level deal, or you made the minimum. That was basically the way. I think the only guy they had that that had any other real money was Taylor Orton Tucker at the start of last season. And they traded him for Patrick Beverly. So then they only really had one other guy who was kind of in between. And, and you know, where the Lakers found their salvation was they took that, that max deal that, that wasn't a great fit for them, and they unbundled it, and they became more balanced and more complete. Uh, what I think has been interesting is that even with, you know, really punitive salary cap rules, um, we've seen a bunch of teams run in the opposite direction this summer that like look at like that have taken the exact opposite approach as the Lakers. Um, you've seen the salary that Boston has added. Um, you know what I mean? And, and they're now a team that has sacrificed depth. Milwaukee has sacrificed depth. Phoenix had sacrificed depth in, in pursuit of like, you know, this arms race for, for multiple stars. And, and you know, it, it is interesting that as all this stuff was happening, the Lakers were just out of it. That like you know the team that normally is the team that that chases down every star and you see the photoshops and all of that stuff, they were much more content and 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 the and look and the, the they didn't have the contracts to get into these things anyways because people have been resigned and such. But like you know they they are kind of were out of the star chasing business and we're into the continuity team building business and it, it's just kind of a weird it's a weird juxtaposition when you consider the the, the stories of the off season and how the Lakers really kind of went in a different direction. So I, 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 my observation would be is that it's a combination of philosophy plus context, which yep. I think is what basically what you're saying, and maybe saying it a slightly different way, but I think that's it. And it's like, um, you know, philosophy is important. What you, you know, believe for team building, what you believe for continuity, what you believe for seizing the moment, et cetera, et cetera. But 
context plays a huge role in that. You know, your 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 limits to what you can and or should do, even uh, uh, you know, uh, accepting what your philosophy is. Yeah, I mean, I think like, look, I think they would have been in the duality trade if they had the if they had the requisite contracts and players and draft assets. Like, I think they, you know, they probably would have kicked around. Damian Lillard talks and stuff like that. I don't believe they'd be in the Harden business. Um, But like, I I think to me that is sort of, um, you know, it is easy to say we valued continuity when like that was really the only road that you could go down. Um, But, but, but it was an interesting, it's an interesting choice. It's interesting to see if, if, if that'll play or if come January, um, you know, when, when you can start trading, you know, Rui Hachimura and D'Angelo Russell and you can, you know, and Austin Reeves, you can kind of start building some contracts, whether or not the Lakers decide to stay down this road or or if they if they instead kind of go to their star chasing ways of, of, of the past and, and make a run at, um, you know, player X like Trey Young or somebody like that if, if Atlanta scuffles or, or, you know, I mean, I think that will be kind of an interesting story to watch. Um, but, but really, you know, I mean, I think heading into the season, like that stuff feels also far off for the Lakers. They feel pretty settled. So I do want to sort of bring up a question on that continuity front. And you mentioned how the Lakers are pretty happy with what Jackson Hayes has shown in the preseason and they did sign Christian Wood to that deal. But other than those two, it does really feel like there's sort of the lack of depth at center. And I mean, Anthony Davis has expressed in the past that he'd rather play power forward, but last season he was pretty much exclusively at center. The year before he played the vast majority of his minutes at center. If the Lakers do sort of pivot in January and look to make a move, do you think it's going to be sort of to shore up that front court, or do you think they're just going to be happy with Hayes and Christian Wood as sort of the backstops for Anthony Davis? Yeah, I mean, I think you look and and see and see what's around. I mean, like like figuring out what to do at center is like a really, I think in the modern NBA is like a really tricky proposition mm-hmm. because you you can you you don't want to probably put that many assets, particularly into a backup center, because those guys get played off the court um, a lot in the postseason. Like, I mean, I think you can look at the you look at the Lakers last year, right, where they had a fairly productive offensive backup center in Thomas Bryant. They traded him at the trade deadline. Denver, I think, traded three second-round picks, if my memory is correct for him. And Thomas Bryant was not in their rotation in the playoffs. There were no minutes for Thomas Bryant, you know? And I think um, for the Lakers to get to where they need to be, you know, um, I think a lot of it is more just sort of like staying afloat than it is about, like, finding these backup center minutes that are, like, you know, super efficient for, you know – uh, nine to, to 12 minutes a night or whatever. I, I, I think it's more of a make-do thing that they can do enough with LeBron at center, with Vanderbilt at center, with Christian mm-hmm. Wood at center, with Hayes at center, that they can, like, they can fight that off with, like, you know, optionality instead of, like, a straight-ahead, like, here is a player that we are going to trade $7 million in salary for, you know, uh, uh, a reliable quote unquote backup center. I mean, look, if Anthony Davis isn't out of court, um, they're in trouble anyways, sure. you, you know? So, I mean, I, 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 I think it's like, it's, it's a need, um, uh, but in more of a luxury sense, I think, you know, like there are going to be holes on the roster. I think they'd rather be deep in the backcourt and on the wing. And I feel like they think they've addressed that. Um, we'll see on the wings is kind of where I'm at with them. I, 
I think they've considered the considering the tools they had available. I think they did about as good as they could do. Um, you know, in that, but it's going to be a challenge. I mean, one of the players who are kind of going really deep, and I don't think this player is going to matter a lot for them this year. One of the guys though that they were really high on in the summer league was Colin Castleton. Um, was on a two-way deal from Florida. Um, you know, played at Michigan as well. Played really well the other night in a preseason game against Golden State. Uh, you know, can he get stronger, stronger enough to like actually be a player that matters? There were some rumblings out of summer league that maybe he's a guy that could get a, a rookie deal, a fifteen, like a fifteen spot. I don't think he's there yet. Um, but where I do think is that if he is a guy who gets a little stronger, he's a tremendous shot blocker, and he's an awesome passer. And he's like, you know, he's one of those guys you can run DHOs with and do different stuff like that. So, you know, if they were going to find a guy, maybe it's in-house. I, I just I, – I don't think it's a huge need today. Uh, but that's just because I don't think in almost any situation I would put a lot of assets in that basket. Like if you have a great center – Awesome, but after that, it's like you're looking at guys kind of in the min bucket, anyways, in terms of backing them up. I don't think I would spend significant assets to figure to to kind of shore that up. Dan, I think a lot of the things you've been talking about today, um, for me, uh, reflect uh, what a good coaching staff that Darvin has. Um, yeah, and um, you know, Phil Handy to me, I've always been a major fan of his work. And um, can you talk? And to the extent that you agree with that, um, focus on him, but otherwise just generally on, you know, what the coaching staff contributes. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really balanced staff. Um, you know, like they've got, you know, Phil Handy, who's got, you know, a really great resume, um, not only as a, a championship level assistant, but as someone who, you know, is a skill, as a, a skill development coach, a guy that, you know, I think um, deserves certainly some of the credit for Rui Hachimura and for Austin Reeves. You've got Chris Gent, Jordan Knott, um, both really well-regarded guys, um, you, you know. And, and then I think you've got a guy in Darvin Ham who, mm-hmm. um, you know, at the start of last season took a lot of a flack for, for lack of adjustments. And, you know, maybe they weren't running the most sophisticated stuff. I, I think um, Darvin answered a lot of critics in the postseason. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that my sources have told me was that like he was incredibly collaborative mm-hmm. with his staff um, in the postseason. They they made big adjustments. They made moves. You know they switched starting lineups. And you know look if if there was one quibble like maybe they were a little small to start against Denver when they started Dennis Schroeder, um, Austin Reeves, and D'Angelo Russell. Um, maybe they could have started Hachimura instead in there or something like that. Um, you you know that. I, I think was maybe the swing and the miss, but like at the end of the day, right? Like, I mean, I think most people regard a, a guy like Taylor Jenkins as a pretty good tactician. Um, Steve Kerr is a master of playoff adjustments and Darvin Ham stood down both those guys, right? you know, and, and their staff in the postseason. I think they should be pretty confident and pretty comfortable. He's tremendously consistent guys. Like you see him on a daily basis and, you know, and some of my work on him, um, you know, before he got hired and, and, and before he even coached for the Lakers. When you talk to the people he worked with in Milwaukee, that's the thing they would say all the time is like, how does this guy have this sort of like same approach every day? Like no matter if it's sunny, if it's rainy, if it's like he got a speeding ticket on the way to work or, you know, or his dog died, like the dude is exactly the same somehow every day. And I think when you are, you're taking on a, a team that has sort of like, 
the expectations to play a hundred games, right? Like you need that level of consistency. I think Sacramento benefits. Mike Brown is a guy who's also like this. Um, and, and where it just, it, it helps when every day is the same. It makes the, it, it makes the grind a little more palatable. Um, you know, and I think it, when it comes, when it came down to like kind of important decisions, important moments in the season, like there was a, a big, um, there was a, a really strong foundation that had been laid over the previous few months where guys trusted him and, and, you know, they, like he earned that trust. It wasn't just given. And I, I, I think they do have a, I think they do have a pretty good staff. You know, it's not the most, they don't have like a, a huge name assistant. They don't have a former head coach on the bench, but, but they like the group they have. They work together. Well, um, they're guys that, that know each other. And, um, you know, I think speaking to everything, right. Like they're just all a part of sort of this, uh, this infrastructure that's now been built um, over over the course since the trade deadline last year, they're all just kind of on the same page. And that's what's looked like so far in training camp and in uh, four preseason games. Well, my, view from, my view from afar is the same as <laughs> your view from up yeah. close in that regard. It is really interesting to me that you brought up Mike Brown in that discussion, because I think we can agree that the media environment around the Lakers and the media environment around the Kings is pretty different, but yeah. you know, what both teams very desperately needed heading into last season was that sense of stability, you know, for very different reasons, right? The Lakers just for being the Lakers, the Kings for having had that long playoff drought, but it is fascinating that, you know, those two coaches are acting in such different environments, but really such a huge part of what they brought was just that stabilizing force. Well, and there are people that, I mean, there are two coaches that have a real relationship too, right? Like Mike Brown hired Darvin Ham into, into the NBA with the Lakers, you know, as a developmental coach and stuff like that. Uh, you know, he is on the list of coaching mentors that Darvin Ham has sort of accumulated over time, you know, um, you know, along with like Mike Budenholz or Mike D'Antoni, um, I teased him the other night. I said, "Like, do you have any mentors not named Mike?" Um, <laughs> but but it is sort of like every coaching Mike of all time. You know, Mike Malone and him maybe not right now. But like, I think like you know the um, the general sense is though is that like you you know th- those guys have all kind of like to me to me the thing as a head coach what what matters most is like can you be your authentic self right in a way that um, players know you're not BSing them and I think Darvin Ham is an A plus. On that front, um, he is incredibly authentic. And then I think the second thing, too, is, you know, he said this the other day before a game is like, you know, the smartest man in the room knows he's not the smartest man in the room. Yeah. And, and I and I think that, you know, you, you hire people and you take advantage of the fact that, like, you have a team that has some very high IQ players. Take advantage of that. LeBron James is on your staff. Like, LeBron James sees the game. I mean, he's on your roster, I'm sorry, but he is functionally on your staff, too. You know, Austin Reeves is a very smart player. D'Angelo Russell is a very smart player. Um, really high basketball IQ. You know what I mean? And like you rely on those guys and, and, and you trust those guys as voices just like you do your assistants and and you kind of work together as like a living, breathing organism. And I think that's what's worked for them. And, you know, I, I, I think it doesn't surprise me that, you know, Mike Brown is a guy who had success not only as a head coach in these situations, like as a, as a LeBron James collaborator at one point, but like, you know, another, as another guy who, you know, is then went and, you know, flourished in the, the Steve Kerr sort of model, you know, and stuff like that. And I think um, that approach to coaching in the modern NBA to me, um, I don't want to say it's the only way to go, but I think it's the surest way 
You know, in, in significant part, it's the surest way because it really fosters and engenders respect from your players. And I think that that's one of the, and it's a two-way street, obviously, but sure. to me, that's one of the most important aspects of being successful in that kind of role, not just in, as a basketball coach, but just generally in an analogous position is having that degree of respect. And I think what you've been describing really sets the stage for having that sort of mutual respect. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it, right. You know, but like, like anything, right. Like you only know, you only know where you're at to get punched in the mouth a little <laughs> bit. Right. And yeah. until those relationships get tested and, sure. you know, if the Lakers start two and 10 again this season, um, you know, we'll hear questions. If Sacramento takes a step back, like we'll hear questions yeah. about these types of things. And, and, uh, but I think, you know, both of these teams, like really, you know, 11 teams in the West, maybe even more, maybe even up to 13 teams in the West this off season have really put themselves in position where they can, they can say like, you know, as we enter the season, like this is going to be a good year in some fashion. Right. And what that means is different for everybody. And what it means for the Lakers is different than what it means, you know, for the Kings or what it means for, the Houston Rockets or the Utah Jazz, but, but like, it does feel like on a night to night basis, like if you were going to go through and do like win loss, win loss over an 82 game schedule, like my, my hunch would be that I'd be somewhere around 41 and 41 for a bunch of different teams. Sure. Just, just because of the way, you know, knowing what we know now, like there's plenty of, there's plenty of firepower out there. There's plenty of dangerous teams. Um, there's a lot of good coaches in the league right now. And, um, you know, the influx of young players is exciting. And I'm just not not totally sure what to make out of any of it. it, other than to say that I think, like, all you can do, again, is put yourself in the best possible position. And I think the teams in the division really have done that. Yeah, and, and I guess the differences among that range of teams is where are they in the building process and where are they in regard to their window? And, you know, so the different possible results equate success on, in certain contexts, but not in others. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think like, you, you know, obviously, right. Like you know, of the teams that are going to be in the top eight, like uh, there'll be certain levels of championship expectation, but like a trip to a trip to the conference finals will hit differently in Sacramento than it would hit. And, sure. and, you know, golden state, you know what I mean? Or, or, or Denver, or Denver, um, you know, it hits a little differently, like, you know, like, where do we think the Thunder are going to be, right? Um, or Minnesota or one of those teams, right? It, it's funny, and I got to run a second, but, like, one of the things that I think um, that I'm interested in this year, right, is, like, that in-season tournament and, and the teams that, like, I think would be best for the tournament to win. And it's, like, Sacramento, Minnesota, um, you know, teams that are, like, on this ascent, Memphis, um, in the West that like teams that are at New Orleans, all these teams that I think are like coming, right. And like, they're building something. You could look at something like going into this, winning this tournament and, and using it as like a legitimate launch pad, um, where you'd have legitimate excitement about celebrating a championship and something. Um, I think a worst case scenario would be a team say like Denver winning it being like, Oh, we just won the NBA title. Right. Like what are, what are we going to do with this thing? Right. You, you, know, you know what I mean? But, but I think though, um, it is, it, it is an interesting time in the league where you do have these teams. You have a team like Denver that seems to have like totally arrived. You have teams like in my mind that are, that are on like a pretty clear ascent. And then you have a, another small handful of teams that are like trying to like get the last couple, um, you know, ounces of blood out of a stone and like what they have. And it, it's, it's why it's so hard to predict. 
Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us and for being so generous with your time. Anything you want to plug quickly before you have to run? Yeah, I would just, you know, tell people to read, you know, we have really good deals at latimes.com on subscriptions. Um, you know, it's a great sports section. I think it's well worth the money. Um, I think it's like something like a buck for like four months or something like that. It's, it's, it's inexpensive. And, um, you know, I think, uh, support your local publications wherever they might be. You know, Dan, um, we're, as you know, from basketball intelligence, major fans of your work and of the what, of Andrew also at the Times and, and, and others. And um, I just want to endorse what you said. Uh, everybody is definitely worth your while. I appreciate it. To be able to, um, you know, read some of the very, very best uh, coverage of, of the association. Well, it's nice and boring with the Lakers. They never they never have any. <laughs> so, so it's nice and easy. But, but anyways, guys, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, Dan, thanks so much. And we'd love to have you back. All right, sounds good. Okay, take care. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for today's episode, a continuation of our Pacific Division preview episodes. You can, of course, find our special guest, Dan Wakey, at the LA Times, and you can find him on Twitter at Dan Wakey Sports. Thank you so much to Dan for joining us for this episode to talk about the Lakers. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's, of course, always helpful for shows like these, but particularly helpful for us, given that we're a brand new show. So if you've been enjoying what we've been providing for you, then please take the time to leave that rating and a review. And of course, subscribe in whatever podcast player you might be using. And as always, thanks so much for listening.